Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 16, Migration, Part 2. Well, hello, and welcome to our second episode on migration. Last time, we met a whole cast of remarkable birds and learned how these tiny feather balls are capable of travelling vast distances on their biannual migrations in a never-ending quest for food and warmth. We met birds that fly tens of thousands of kilometres across open ocean in a single flight. Birds that instinctively find their way to a place they've never been before. Birds that gorge themselves, doubling their weight, all so they can burn it off in some intense aerobic aerobatics. Well, except for that grouse that just walks down a mountain. I don't think it burns anything off the lazy bar. Each one of these behaviours is extraordinary, but maybe more extraordinary is just how recently we've come to learn about all this. And I'm not even talking about the finer details and nuances of migration. I mean the simple fact that birds migrate at all. Because, relatively speaking, the revelation that birds migrate is quite a recent discovery. But what do I mean by relatively recent? I mean, on the scale of life on Earth, birds are a relatively recent phenomenon, so let's get some perspective here. By recent, I mean we only got consensus agreement that birds migrate at about the beginning of the 19th century. Which is crazy, right? People knew birds disappeared during the winter. Where did they think they went? The moon? And I joke, but in the 17th century, Charles Morton, an English minister and scientist, and I use the word scientist with the loosest possible definition, Charles Morton published a pamphlet where he argued that during the winter, birds flew to the moon. Which is a kind of migration, I guess? He calculated that by travelling at 200 kilometres an hour, they could make the journey in around 60 days. And look, his math is a little out, but it's at least a ballpark figure for how long such a flight would take. Morton reasoned that the birds were going somewhere in the winter, but because no one knew where that somewhere was, it only stood to reason that they were leaving Earth for celestial bodies. If not the moon, then where? Where indeed? Today, it's a laughable theory, but back then it wasn't quite so outlandish, with many people believing that all the planets harboured some sort of life, so why not? After all, who was to say the atmosphere didn't go on forever? No one had checked. It wouldn't be until the 1860s that we worked out the higher you go, the less air there is, and if you keep going up, you eventually run out of oxygen and die. There ain't no atmosphere between here and the moon. It was quite a surprise for those early adventuring hot air balloonists. Story for another time. But even so, back then, moon migration was still a bit of a fringe theory. The real debate raged between a faction of people who believed birds migrated and another faction of people who believed birds hibernated. We might scratch our heads over this, but we need to remember that until recently, tracking a bird wasn't exactly an easy task. People who knew birds went somewhere in the winter, but because so many of them migrate at night, they almost never caught them in the act. So, you know, how are you going to figure it out? Now, after all, plenty of other animals hibernate. Why not birds? 
The first recorded person to suggest bird hibernation was our old friend Aristotle. As is so often the case with how false rumours get started, Aristotle is once again to blame. Aristotle, famous for being wrong about everything. Now, he did state that a great number of birds migrate, but in the next breath, followed that up with the utterly nonsensical statement that, of course, swallows famously hibernate in muddy holes quite denuded of feathers. I mean, naturally, if you're going to hibernate through a bone-chilling winter, you'd drop all your feathers. It's not like they keep you warm or anything. This myth persisted for hundreds of years, and it was commonly believed that swallows would hibernate in ponds under the frozen ice. You can even find old engravings of fishermen hauling up sleeping swallows by the netful. For years, the argument went back and forth. They hibernate, they migrate, they hibernate, they migrate. It wasn't until the mid-1700s that someone finally came up with an experiment to test the theory. A German amateur ornithologist, Johann Leonard Frisch, came up with the ingenious idea of attaching ribbon coated in watercolour paint to the bird's legs shortly before they vanished in the winter. His theory was that if the birds were spending any time submerged in water, as they would presumably be doing if they hibernated under a frozen pond, then the watercolour paint would be removed. But this is not what happened. In the spring, when the birds returned, they arrived with their colourful ribbons still intact. With that experiment, the theory of swallow hibernation was blown to pieces, and it was also the first real evidence that the same birds returned to their summer home each year. It would take another hundred years to completely dispel the theory of avian hibernation for all species, but this was the first modern step towards settling the question. Of course, today we know that almost no bird anywhere hibernates. Almost no bird. Ah no, there was a qualifying statement in that sentence. Almost. Because, as is always the case, there is an exception. The common poorwill of North America is a small, nocturnal bird closely related to nightjars and frogmouths. The poorwill is so named not because of their lack of willpower, but because of the strange call they make in the night. Kinda a poor will kinda sound, I guess. Roll the audio! And uniquely, unlike other birds, when conditions get cold, instead of flying south they will go into an extended torpor, for days or even weeks. Now, hummingbirds use torpor on a daily basis, but the poor will is the only bird that uses it for extended periods. Now, torpor is different from sleep, it is essentially hibernation, it just has a broader definition. The only difference is that hibernation is an extended period of torpor. When a bird goes into this state, their body all but shuts down. Their body temperature drops, heart rate plummets, their metabolism grinds to a halt. This state helps an animal survive during periods of low food availability. In other words, hibernation. Hummingbirds need to do it every night in order to survive to the morning without starving to death, thanks to their normally crazy high metabolism. A story for another time. But the common poor will is the only bird to do it over extended periods. They 
bunk down on the ground among a pile of rocks and rely on their natural camouflage to keep them hidden while they wait for conditions to improve. The Native Americans knew of this behaviour and they had a special name for the poor will, Holchuko, which means the sleeping one. Apologies if I said that wrong. What do I mean, if? I apologise, I definitely said that wrong. So that covers our one hibernating exception. Every other bird that disappears though, they're migrators. The truth of avian migration came about through a slow process. While our old friend Johan may have shown that swallows don't hibernate, it would take some time to prove that migration was the answer. The first real evidence came during the 18th century, again from a German ornithologist named Johann, but a different Johann this time, Johann Andre Neumann. This Johann kept large aviaries of birds, among them were golden orioles. These bright yellow and black birds are natives of Europe and Asia during the summer months, but when winter comes, like many birds, they move south to spend the winter in sub-Saharan Africa. So when autumn came to Germany in August, Johann noticed something curious about his birds. During the night they would become restless, fluttering back and forth across their cages for hours on end, and each night they would do the same thing, over and over again. Them jailbirds wanted to break free, they kept this agitated state up for weeks. Eventually they would settle down and act normally until March arrived and then they would do it all over again. Johann speculated that the birds were displaying an urge to migrate, and based on the time that this agitated state lasted, he predicted that wherever they wanted to go, it was a hell of a long way away. He thought Africa was a likely destination, a somewhat more modest theory than the moon, and it turned out he was right. The name he gave to this behaviour was, God help me, Zugenruthi? And can I just say what a refreshing change it is to mispronounce German instead of the usual French or Latin. Zugenruthi is a compound German word from Zug meaning to move and Ruthi meaning restless anxiety, essentially agitated movement. Still today, this is the formal word ornithologists use to describe the nocturnal urge to migrate that birds display. Our second piece of evidence for migration came again from Germany in 1822. What is it with Germans and migration? This time it was a wild white stork. Much like the Orioles, storks move between Europe and Africa through the year, and one day a stork turned up at the small town of Klutz with a little memento from its African holiday. It seems that while minding its own business, a local hunter had attempted to capture and kill the bird. A spear had been thrown at it, which had gone clean through its neck and lodged itself there. Somehow, the bird had not only survived the ordeal, but had managed to fly all the way back to Europe with a metre and a half spear pierced through its neck. The bird made for quite a remarkable sight, so remarkable in fact, that while it had evaded its African stalker, it had no such luck with the Europeans. They caught it, killed it, stuffed it, and put it on display in the Rostock University where it remains to this day. Since this first bird in 1822, several other similarly injured storks have found their way to Europe, and collectively they're known as Feiselstorks. Yet another unpronounceable German word. I'm pretty sure they make them deliberately unpronounceable. I mean, for God's sake, it's got a P followed by an F. How the hell are you supposed to say that? Feiselstork literally translates to arrow stork, and in the last hundred or so years, about 30 have been recovered. 
By carefully studying the arrow shaft, or spear that the bird carries, it was even possible to pinpoint the location where they came from. So here the evidence was starting to mount up. We knew the birds were going somewhere, they seemed to get restless and want to fly away, and now they were coming back with souvenirs from their trip. But it wasn't solid evidence. After all, maybe they were just trying to fly to the moon, or maybe some prankster from around the corner had obtained a genuine African spear and planted it on the bird. I, who was to say? We needed hard evidence. I am exaggerating a little bit. But to get that hard evidence, we can finally leave Germany and skip across the border to Denmark to meet Hans Mortensen. Now, Mortensen was a bit of a crusty old schoolmaster with a penchant for collecting avian data. He came up with the idea of attaching ring bands to the bird's leg so that they could be easily identified in one location and then another. He began in 1899 by capturing a pair of starlings in specially designed nesting boxes that sprung shut when a bird popped inside. Mortensen handcrafted thin aluminium rings imprinted with information that identified the location where the bird had been caught and then released. And then he put the word out, inviting people to be on the alert for his ringed birds and to report back where and when they were sighted. Over the remainder of his life, he personally caught and ringed some 6,000 birds, including ducks and storks, as well as starlings. Whenever a finder reported one of his birds, he would send them an extensive questionnaire as he attempted to build up a data set, not just of where the birds wintered, but the routes they took. Here we had irrefutable evidence that birds migrate. Even though by the turn of the 20th century, the argument had more or less been settled, only now could we point to individual birds that had been found in both their wintering and breeding grounds. His idea caught on with other ornithologists, and ring banding became common practice right across the world, and is still done today. The only problem with ring banding, well, aside from the fact that you need to find and then recapture the bird in some far-flung place, is that it only provides you two data points, the place where the bird was caught and the place where it was sighted. What happens in between is a bit of a mystery. It wouldn't be until well into the 20th century that the next great leap in bird tracking took place once we had satellites and transmitters. With this technology, we could now track birds as they journeyed around the globe, and we gradually came to appreciate not only that birds did indeed migrate, but just how truly astounding their journeys are. Of course, there were still limitations. A transmitter strong enough to beam information back to a lab is heavy, and only the largest birds could carry them, eagles and swans and whatnot. For tiny songbirds, it was too great a weight. We overcame this shortcoming by getting trackers that would record their location without transmitting. Of course, these are like fancy ring bands, because it does mean at some point you have to catch the bird again to retrieve the location tracking information. We had another leap forward in the 1940s with the introduction of radar. Operators would see mysterious phantom signals turning up in the middle of the night. It took them a while, but eventually they worked out it was just migrating birds, and since then the same technology has been used to track these flocks during their nocturnal excursions. Slowly, bit by bit, we are learning more about just what these birds do when no one is looking. All sorts of interesting experiments have been conducted to learn more about how birds migrate. 
By using special hoods, we worked out that it was the bird's exposure to sunlight that triggered their urge to migrate. If deprived of light, their internal clock quickly drifts away from the true season. By placing birds in special chambers, we learnt that they could orientate themselves so that they were pointing in their intended destination, even without any landmark or external context. This showed that they were able to detect the Earth's magnetic fields as a means to navigate and orientate. No matter where you put them, they always knew which direction to head in. The more we looked, the more it seemed there was no end to the tricks birds had evolved to help them travel and find their way anywhere in the world. This was no simple matter of flying from A to B. What it takes to do that seemingly simple task is incredible. Now, before we close, I want to tell you about one last experiment that shows how hardwired the urge to migrate with these birds is. In the 1940s and 50s, ornithologist Albert Purdeck carried out a series of experiments, again with starlings. He would capture hundreds of the little birds during their annual migration between Europe and Africa. But then he would play a dirty trick on them. He placed them in a box, flew them to Switzerland, 600 kilometers to the east of where they were caught, and released them again. He was interested to see what the birds would do. Were they working with just a compass that told them to head in a certain direction? Or did they actually know where they needed to be? His question, would they end up 600 kilometers east of their true wintering grounds? Or would they course correct and navigate to the right place? The results were rather extraordinary. Consistently, over the years this experiment was run, he discovered that young birds undertaking the migration for the first time would indeed end up 600 kilometers off course, but older, more experienced birds who had done the trip before would course correct and end up in the right place. What it showed is that while birds do have an innate, built-in urge to migrate in a certain direction, over the course of their lives they pick up other navigational tricks. They learn to spot landmarks and navigate via the sun and stars. And they become so good at it that even if they're blown off course via natural, or in this case, human means, they can correct and find their way. What Perdeck proved is that yes, birds use the Earth's magnetic fields to find their way, and yes, their destination is hardwired into their genes, but it is far more sophisticated than that. They are true champion navigators. And curiously, those young birds that had been displaced always managed to find their way home to where they had been born. But when they would winter in subsequent years, they would always end up going to the wrong place again. The location, once visited, became baked into their memory, and that was where they went from then on. This showed that birds somehow imprint on places where they live. So as you can see, it's no simple thing. It's quite a complex process. For birds, migration is so much more than just flying from one place to another. There is so much complexity to the behavior that it's even difficult to generalize for all birds because each species achieves the feat in its own unique way. For example, I've mentioned several times over the last two episodes that many small songbirds migrate at night. And although we know why they do this, the air is less turbulent at night, they can avoid predators, and it frees up time to forage for food through the day. 
but we still don't really know how they can do it physiologically. Are they sleeping during their migratory period? These birds are normally only active through the day. When are they resting? Do they even need rest? What is controlling the change in their circadian rhythms that keeps them awake and active at night? Well, as far as we can tell, there is no single answer. Some birds will sleep one hemisphere of their brain and then the other while staying in flight. Some birds will sneak catnaps when they get a chance through the day while they're foraging. And it also seems that for some birds, they won't rest at all during their migration. We still don't have good answers to these questions. What this means is that we still have a lot to learn about how birds migrate. But one thing that is becoming more and more apparent is that migratory birds increasingly have declining populations, and they're declining faster than non-migratory birds. In one sense, I think intuitively this is easy to understand. A non-migratory bird lives in only one place. As long as that place is preserved, they're probably going to be okay. But a migratory bird relies on at least two habitats, separated by hundreds or thousands of kilometres. And as we saw, many birds rely on key stopover points along their migratory route as well. If any one of these key places becomes incapable of supporting them, well, they're gonna die. By the sheer law of averages, because they rely on more habitats, it means there's a greater chance that something will go wrong at some point in the chain. And I don't think it's a coincidence that here in Australia, two of our most endangered parrots are the orange-bellied parrot and the swift parrot, both migratory. What this highlights for me is just how interconnected the world is. Nothing on Earth exists in isolation, and through these migratory birds we can see how the degradation of one habitat in one corner of the world can have a devastating impact on another corner somewhere else. And it's becoming increasingly important that we be aware of these realities and that we at least try to make collective decisions that minimise our impact. And the more we know about how birds migrate and how they rely on their environments to do it, the better able we'll be to make good decisions about protecting them. We are still learning more and more how birds perform these great feats of long-distance travel. From the time of Aristotle, when he falsely proclaimed that birds hibernate right through to today, it has been a long process to understand just what these birds do and how they do it. But hopefully, over the last two episodes, I've at least given you a taste of how remarkable these behaviours are. Next time, we're going to change pace to bring you a rather curious story of birds, feathers, fly tyres, and the natural history heist of the century. I hope you'll join me then. Is one bird, however often I release this podcast, not enough for you? Then I've got some good news. If you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox every week, simply send an email to weekly.bird at outlook.com and I'll add you to the Bird of the Week mailing list. No ads, no subscriber fees, just beautiful birds flying at you each and every week. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Have you ever heard about how crocodiles open their mouths to let little birds clean their teeth? Yeah, it's a myth. It doesn't happen. Aristotle started that rumour as well. Aristotle, famous for being wrong about everything. Oh wait, what? Oh, oh no, actually it was a Herodotus. No, I'm spreading fake news. Damn it, Herodotus!